Kia ora koutou. welcome to Te Hiringa Waka, Victoria University of Wellington, the podcast. My name is Dr Sarah Jane O'Connor and I teach science communication in the Centre for Science and Society here at Te Hiringa Waka. I'm also an ecologist and your host of the Sustainability Focus podcast. Today I'll be talking to two academics from different parts of the university about circular economies. First I'd like to introduce our guests, Dr Ben Walker and Hannah Blumhart. Dr Ben Walker affiliates to Nate Rokawa and is a lecturer in organisational behaviour in the School of Management. His research and teaching focuses on the people side of management, specifically how work affects and is affected by people's thoughts, emotions, personalities and identities. He's passionate about his role in shaping how the next generation of managers thinks about sustainability and ethics, and he incorporates insights from Te Ao Māori into his teaching. Hannah Blumhart is a senior associate in the Institute for Governance and Policy Studies with a background in law, policy, history and international relations. She also has personal experience with the circular economy in action, having lived without a rubbish bin since 2015. Today, Hannah is part of Aotearoa New Zealand's Zero Waste Movement, and advocates for a waste-free world from the grassroots through to government. Hannah, as part of your introduction, we highlighted that you haven't had a rubbish bin since 2015. If you'll allow me to ask a cheeky question, why? It's quite a drastic thing, and I think often when people ask us, you know, like, what led you to live without a rubbish bin, I think people are expecting us to kind of describe some sort of eureka moment that happened, the clouds parted, a flash of lightning, and but no, it was actually really boring, to be honest. Like, probably initially I was motivated by the whole plastic pollution thing, but it didn't take very long to realise that low waste living isn't really just about plastic and it's not just about packaging, it's actually about rethinking the way that we use all of the planet's resources and that's for pollution that happens upstream and downstream of production processes but also the carbon intensity of this take, make, throw, take, make, throw system that we live in and so I guess those realisations were what led me and my partner Liam to continue living without a rubbish bin as opposed to just starting. The linear way of doing things is so normalised and that I think we don't question it or almost it's like we believe that wastefulness is inevitable I suppose and it's also I think very challenging for the average person to not produce waste. It's a systemic issue. Do you think that these issues around rubbish and waste is on the mind of New Zealanders? Do you, do you get a feeling that people want to do better? Cantar do this Better Future survey asking New Zealanders what are the issues that most concern them. And every year, without fail, issues related to waste or plastic pollution are in the top ten issues that concern New Zealanders. So yeah, people really care. And I think it's because it's a really visible issue, like as opposed to, say, climate change and emissions, you can see the impact, maybe, but it's kind of delayed and indirect as opposed to like a piece of plastic floating in the ocean. Ben, I want to bring you in at this point. In what ways does your research and teaching connect with sustainability issues? I teach our Introduction to Management course here at Te Hiringawaka, Management 101, which is a core course on the Bachelor of Commerce program. So every year we get around about a thousand students who have to do this course in the years that I've been teaching in the last three or four years, I think we've made a really big effort to talk more about the ethics of management and really trying to get the next generation of managers and business people, I suppose, to think in different ways about what the objectives of business and commerce are, that it doesn't all necessarily have to come back to the financial bottom line, that there are these other bottom lines as well. Listeners might be familiar with the sort of triple bottom line approach 
But in your work, I think you talk about something called the quadruple bottom line. So the quadruple bottom line gets at the idea that businesses shouldn't only be judged based on their financial performance, but also based on their social, cultural and environmental impact as well. But in my teaching, one of the ideas I talk about with our students, um, so I created this, this sort of animated video for them that explains how the quadruple bottom line, while it's a fairly recent idea in management thinking in the West, in Te Ao Māori, the environment I was raised in, the idea of thinking about profit is kind of alien. But really what takes into stage is the idea of thinking about impact on people, impact on the environment, and those ideas are just embedded in Māori culture and have been since forever. Um, so I try and explain that to students as well, the idea that a lot of what we're starting to realise about sustainability in Western contexts, particularly in Western business contexts, um, seems like it's new and something that is you know, a response to current events, but in actually many other cultures, not just Te Ao Māori, it's something that's kind of ancient and has been around forever. And I think that's quite an important lesson for them to realise that many people have been thinking of for a long time. We're only just starting to realise that and its significance, though, in our corner of the world. But I think my hope as an educator is to try and have the next generation of managers and workers and people who comprise our businesses and organisations thinking more broadly and critically and more creatively too about what the underlying aims and objectives are of the places they work for. Hannah, today we're broadly thinking around circular economies. Can I come back to you to give us a brief explanation of that concept and what it could look like in Aotearoa? Yeah, so the idea of a circular economy is how we can meet people's needs or the things that people want to access goods and services in such a way that the economic system doesn't produce waste or pollution that the materials and products that we draw into the economy, once we've drawn them in, we keep them going round and round the system for as long as possible. And ideally also that our economic system would be regenerating nature as well. And how much of that comes down to, or, or eventually need to come down to the companies, the industries that are producing those goods and services that we want and enjoy in our lives? I would like to see really less emphasis on businesses needing to change and more emphasis on government showing some leadership and recalibrating the rules of the game so that businesses behave differently, meeting quadruple bottom lines for example. This conversation around businesses needing to change quickly comes into pointing fingers but it's not clear who needs to do what and how. Ben, I'm interested in whether what Hannah's describing resonates with your thoughts around this broader thinking around businesses, management, sustainability. In the future, if you have this next generation of managers or employees working in, the, in these organisations and government does change the rules or, or enforces a certain type of um, reporting system or incentive system, that at the very least you don't have to persuade them of the importance or the urgency of what the end goal is, whether it's zero waste or moving to a circular economy, that they actually accept that as a baseline valid and, and important goal. In the last, probably like the last 10 or 20 years in the business world, there's definitely been talk about sustainability and stuff as a, as a competitive advantage, which kind of always annoys me, because I'm like, <laughs> I, I think it should be just more of a, a basic requirement mm. than a competitive advantage. 
Am I suggesting that if the government does come through and bring in, for instance, new regulations that you'd want businesses and managers to go, yes, we've been wanting to do this all along, now you're telling us which way, which direction yeah, to go? Yeah, it's like giving people permission to do something they already think they should be doing but weren't quite sure was acceptable to do, you know? In the future, I think I'd like to see a world where businesses are just doing those things because it's just a norm and it's expected rather than it being a source of distinction, I suppose. Any thoughts on that, Hannah? Oh, yeah. What I often see in terms of government and council-driven waste minimisation is the focus is so often on behaviour change campaigns targeted at individuals. And while I recognise that that is an important element of it, it's just so top-heavy focused on this kind of we're going to change people's behaviour, we need to have a mindset shift, and I feel like it's really unreasonable to expect people or even businesses to behave in a way that is going to cost them time and effort and give them a competitive disadvantage. So I feel like we need to move into a position where being sustainable isn't seen as a competitive advantage, but it's not seen as a competitive disadvantage, and that really does require the rules of the game to be reset. Everybody loves the sustainability agenda <laughs> until it requires some change. Having these conversations around mindset changing and moulding people's way of thinking is important to get that social licence, but I don't believe that that's the way that you get system change. We need to make it easier for businesses and people, and I think to a certain extent what makes it easier is rule changing. The linear economy itself is a particular form of extractive economics that was implemented around the world through imperialism really and so in terms of Te Ao Māori world view the values they're already quite aligned with not putting profit before everything and so there might not need to be so much a mindset realignment so much as making that easier to come to the fore. I mean the classic example I use with my class is when me and my dad when he took me fishing as a kid and this is a common like tikanga in Te Ao Māori it's like the first, the first fish you catch, you always throw it back to Tangaroa to say, thanks for looking after us and we'll take the next one. You know, and I think that is a metaphor for a lot of thinking about these things. That just happens naturally in Te Aumapi. I think a lot of those values related to thinking about making the most of, of resources and not wasting things and doing things in a way that actually thinks multidimensionally about the environment or about the hapori, the community or whatever, does come pretty naturally in Te Ao Māori and for people who are raised in that world. But the other temptation, I think, is to romanticise Te Ao Māori and to say that it's the solution to everything and that everything is so perfect there. And I don't think that's true either. Like, there's examples of Māori businesses where they have strayed from those values or where things haven't gone as well or where things have been done in a way that weren't necessarily super sustainable so I think I'm always conscious of that as well not presenting everything as sort of the the silver bullet or the solution to such a grand complex problem the the treaty settlement thing is definitely I mean that's grown some pretty massive businesses from a Maori standpoint if you think about like fishery settlement things that have happened with like Waikato Tainui and the different businesses that they're involved in but I think that challenge for those economies at the moment, if I'm being a little more controversial, is that a lot of what they're involved in are also industries that have the potential to be quite 
unsustainable and it can be trickier to manage like the impact on the environment if we think about you know things like fisheries or things like agriculture or forestry so I think the sustainability challenge just because we're talking about Māori businesses that are are grounded in iwi or the Māori culture generally doesn't go away for them and I think that is going to be a challenge I think a lot of the Māori authorities and iwi around the the country are now starting to think, well, what are the other sort of business activities that we can be involved in that are more sustainable, that have less of a carbon footprint or that are cleaner? I'd love to hear from both of you what vision you have for society, businesses, government decisions, what it could look like if we started making some of these bold steps towards solutions to some of our big sustainability issues. In a truly zero waste or circular economy, I guess the first thing you'd notice is that there would be fewer things in the economy in the first place because we would be much more mindful about what we brought in and when we brought something in, we would be thinking about how can we get the most out of this and so there would be much more sharing, shared resources. So for example, we wouldn't all be owning our own cars. We would have car sharing systems or public transport space. We'd have more businesses that would be centred around repairing, fixing things, refurbishing things, reconditioning. So we would have an economy that's more focused on the skills that people bring as opposed to objects to sell. And if that were to happen, we would also be seeing more services around reusables. So packaging would be reusable and that would translate into less litter, pollution. We'd have fewer landfills and from that we would have cleaner air and we'd have more time for each other because we would be spending more time with each other, connected as communities, sharing our skills and resources. You know, if we have a truly circular economy, it's also got to be one where power is distributed more fairly and resources are distributed more fairly so there would be less inequality because you wouldn't have a small number of people controlling the resources needed to continually churn out stuff. Skills would be more diffuse throughout the economy and that would lead to greater equity and fairness and power wouldn't be so centred based on what you own. Oh, and also we'd have great soil. The soil would be wonderful. We would be growing food. Like There would be way more communal gardens growing things and the profession that would be revered would be people that could grow things um, and to build soil. Yeah, that was a really important part of the vision. It's interesting when you say that, Hannah, because kind of how you've described it is how I, when I give the three-minute version of where did capitalism come from to my students, before capitalism, this is what life looked like. But when you say that to people, sometimes, so all the things you've just described, if you say, oh, so it's like, you know, going back to this time, they think, oh, regressive. You know, think about all the great stuff that's happened since then that we now don't have to worry about. Kind of curious, how do you get people to take seriously and buy into the idea of going to that way of life without them triggering all these connotations of the old way is bad, we've made so much progress. Is that a sort of a question you get from people? The world is never going to look like it did in the 50s and before because we've come so far. You know, even things like the sharing economy will probably be mediated to some extent through like technology and that kind of thing. We're able to do certain things in a way that's probably more efficient than before. It's not going to be like going back to 
whatever it is that people imagine that is. But also, socially, I think, we're totally different to what we were like before in that we're 50s and before there were some pretty dark things going on in terms of our relationships with each other, like obviously racism, colonialism, sexism. And I do believe that have made a lot of progress in our society. So I think that we would bring that kind of connection with us into the new world. Imagine if everybody in our society was able to slow down, was able to have a little bit of time where they weren't working all the time and where they were able to spend time with each other and grow food and, yeah. Yeah, it's, just, uh, it's interesting for me, right, because it's a research and mainly what I study is that those psychological aspects and that, that idea that people think simplifying equals regression. There's that connotation mm. between those two concepts in their mind and potentially breaking that connection or reforming it, rewiring simpler to some you know, other concept like progression instead of regression or happiness or well-being. Maybe that's something that is work for all of us to do. Last question for both of you. What do you hope our listeners will take from this discussion? If they're inspired to do more in their own households, acknowledging that individual behaviour is not the only thing, or advocating for a wider change, what do you hope that they're going to take from this? One thing for me that I think is informed by the research I've done on people's assumptions about expertise and also my own intellectual journey, I suppose, and doing a PhD and coming into academia, is I think there's so much that can be gained from developing expertise in something yourself, or at least pursuing expertise in something. Because I think once you start to do that, and whatever it is, right, it doesn't have to be in terms of something academic or research, it could be any, it could be expertise in a sport, it could be expertise in a craft, expertise in a hobby. I think when you start to do that and you realise how much you don't know about something, it's kind of like a life-changing experience and it changes the way you think about and interact with others when it comes to things like what do they think about the circular economy, how can we reduce waste, I think it gives you a degree of what they kind of call intellectual humility and understanding that often sort of a hallmark of expertise is not only knowing heaps but also knowing what you don't know and where your limitations mm-hmm. are. I think that helps a lot in terms of how people have productive conversations with experts you know, and, and what kind of experts they look to. Listening to what experts have to say about these kind of issues is pretty important and, and being able to take that on board in a constructive way. Yeah, I'd love people to go away with the idea that they can make changes in their own life and that it does make a difference, but also to then reflect on the learnings you have from those changes and use that to go and talk with more people and think about how the system could change. The other thing I'd love people to take away is this idea that the way that we currently live now isn't inevitable, doesn't have to be like this, and in fact it hasn't always been like this and that we can go. I really like this concept of back to the future, which is that we learn from our past, but it doesn't mean that we're going back to the past. We're going back to the future and we're moving forward within our present context. And so the way we currently do things, it doesn't have to be this way. We can change, but it does involve active process of change. Thank you, Ben and Hannah, for your time and expertise. It's been a real pleasure hearing from you both and hearing some of those visions for how we might continue to make changes that align better with our sustainability goals. Namahi. To stay up to date with our latest podcasts, 
Subscribe using your preferred podcast provider. Thank you to Te Koki School of Music alumni Stefan Patton and Kenyon Shanky for the use of their music. From Te Heringa Waka, Victoria University of Wellington, Haere rā.